Hi there, it's Melvin. Just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Thryzer for supporting this month's podcast sessions. Thryzer is a payment platform that you have to check out if you are a private pay therapist and accepting out-of-network benefits. It basically helps clients save on therapy up front. Thryzer can help verify a client's out-of-network benefit ahead of the first session so that they get transparency up front on what their out-of-pocket costs will be. I'll tell you more about Thryzer here in the middle of our session, but if you go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, you actually end, then enter the code STC upon sign up, you get your first $2,500 in fees waived. Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hello, hello. Welcome to session 181 of Selling the Couch. Hope you're having an awesome start to your day. So today's podcast topic is one that I've been wanting to have an episode on, which is how in the world can we as clinicians create a sound social media policy? I feel like in this day and age of 8 million social media platforms, well, maybe not that many, but a good number of social media platforms, how do you navigate the world of social media and specifically the intersection of social media with our personal lives and then with our professional lives? My guest today is Dr. Keely Combs. And Keely and I, I've been, had reached out. I mentioned this right at the beginning of the interview, but Keely was one of those guests where I thought, man, that would be so awesome to have Keely on the podcast. And and it worked out. But Keely's name has come up numerous times. They are an expert when it comes to social media policy and thinking through a lot of stuff. So we're going to cover a range of things in today's podcast conversation. So first, we're going to start about and just talk about what exactly is a social media policy. And then we're going to go really deep into some of the tips in terms of how we can create a sound social media policy. And then we'll wrap up with some of the biggest issues that Keely has seen in their practice, in their consulting practice, when it comes to struggles that clinicians have. When you get to that part of the podcast conversation, I think you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I either this has happened to me or I know of someone that this has happened to. Today's podcast is supported by Turning Point HQ. Uh, This is a brand new sponsor on the STC podcast, but David and I call him Dave. Dave and I have gotten to know each other over the past two years. He was a previous STC podcast guest. And honestly, Dave is one of the most kind and generous and helpful people that I know. And with sponsors, you guys know I'm I'm super discretionary in terms of who I share uh, the STC audience with. And Dave, when uh, we talked about sponsorship, he was one of those people. I had zero doubt. And so Dave is a financial planner, uh, specifically for therapists, and his whole mission is to transform your relationship with money. I know for many of us, uh, money is something that, and the money stories that we have often been told, it impacts a lot of how we do business. It impacts how we approach things like retirement and investing and all of those things. 
And Dave understands that, and he comes from just a very heart-centered place to help us build out an investment in a retirement portfolio. Dave actually has this really cool guide. Uh, It's absolutely free to download, and it's called The 7 Money Mistakes That Hold Therapists Back. You can find it over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash turning point HQ. And that guide has a lot of the things that that can hold a lot of therapists back. And actually, if you go through that link as well, you get $200 off any service that Dave provides. So we'll get right to today's podcast conversation. Here's my conversation with Dr. Keely Holmes from drkcolmes.com. Hi, Keely. Welcome to Selling the Couch. Hi, Melvin. I'm happy to finally be here. I am so glad you're here as well. I was telling you right before we started recording, I remember when I first started selling the couch. I mean, this is actually even before I recorded a single episode. You were one of the first folks that I reached out to. And I had heard your name. Your name had come up in multiple places. And multiple people had told me, you should reach out to Keely if you want to you know, talk about social media stuff. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And I remember I was literally sweating bullets when, uh, when I reached out to you. And I'm, I'm so grateful for one that you're on the podcast and uh, I don't know, through, through the magic of internet and email that we've been able to connect. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. And I hope you're feeling calmer now. Yes. I guess after 170 of these episodes, a little bit better now. So I wanted to talk about this topic because I don't know, just as the world of social media expands and new sorts of opportunities to market and things like that come, I think there is a lot of wisdom in thinking about the other side of this, the the legal side, and just making sure that as we enter into these various channels, as we interact on these channels, that we are doing our due diligence. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yes, me too. I'm interested in, in what you have to ask. Yeah. Um, well, so we'll just jump right in. So I, I wanted to start kind of basic, which is what in the world is a social media policy? Well, a social media policy is a document that we provide for our clients that explains how we use technology in our practices and how our clients can expect us to respond to potential interactions online. And it also can help clients to think about, it can help frame the clinical relationship. So it's really a document that answers anticipated questions. And I think of it as a really important part of informed consent. And informed consent, at least for therapy, we also have to do that for assessment and research and other professional activities. But most of us are practicing in disciplines that say that as early as is feasible in therapy, we let our clients and patients know about the anticipated course of therapy fees, involvement of third parties, limits of confidentiality, and we give folks a chance to ask questions and get answers. Mm -hmm. So I see this as part of really doing a thorough job of including not only what happens in the room, but what might happen outside of the room on the internet. Yes, I even, I think like at a practical level, this could be like what happens in a situation. I'm, I'm sure this has happened to lots of folks where a potential client reaches out on 
a Facebook business page or a via yeah, private message or something like that. Exactly. Like when I wrote the policy, I was thinking about things like contact requests, maybe even when you see a friend of yours retweet someone who you recognize as someone in your practice. You know, what should you do? Should you click on that and read further or should you think about what the implications might mean? And even questions such as, should I Google a client or is it appropriate to gather information in ways that the internet allows us to about someone who's in my practice and under my care. Got it. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of a lot of sense. And I actually you started to answer this and I wanted to I'm curious, what made you like personally, what made you actually create a social media policy? Yeah, I was I was starting my private practice in 2008. And there were a couple of things. One was that I was asking myself these questions, partly because I had a very rich and social internet life prior to starting my practice. And then I was creating this separate professional identity. You know, some people feel like it's a very integrated identity. And I think for me, I was working really hard to create a separate professional identity. And I started anticipating all of these potential dilemmas. And then right around that same time, I actually watched a video presentation that Dr. Jeffrey Barnett, and he's a pretty well-known ethicist, uh, that he was doing on ethics and the internet. And he was talking about how it would be really great to include some sort of policy that talks about what you might do. So I started looking for one. I thought, oh, that's so great. I need to get my hands on one of those social media policies so I can think about what I would put in my own. But I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything at all. So it ended up being the impetus of my thinking through where do I think the problem areas might be? You know, what seems risky or challenging? What do I anticipate could happen? And then how do I want to manage that? And it also gave me an opportunity to look at my own ethics code, which I always encourage people to do, review your own ethics code, because most of the challenges that we're encountering online are the same ones that we encounter offline and in our you know, practice lives in the room. But it gave me an opportunity to kind of wed the two and think about, well, what would my ethics code want me to do about this? Yeah, I mean, it's just even in my own personal life, like I was thinking, you know, for me, like I resonate a lot with what you're saying, because I'm constantly trying to navigate this world of, you know, having this sort of public profile, right, versus with with selling the couch. And then I have a small private practice. And so how do I sort of manage that? Then the intersection of when clinicians reach out to me, when, you know, if, if potential clients reach out to me, all of those things. And, and I feel like it's only going to get more complicated, you know, as right, right. This, the social media world just, I feel like expands, you know, so quickly. Well, there's a way also that I think, and maybe this was less comfortable for people a decade or two ago, kind of this sense that we are all, at least if we're on social media, some sort of media figure. And I think some more traditionally trained clinicians who were not so active on the internet might feel like they really had, you know, maybe their patients were curious about them, but they, there was a time where we were a little bit more shielded, but now it's becoming almost impossible unless you really did 
you know, are determined to not have any online presence. So it's almost like it's just a natural thing now that information about us is out there. And we work with people who may be just as curious about us as we are about them. Yeah, no, that's a great way to look at it. So for those of you guys that are listening, one of the things that we are going to do with this conversation is break down just some of the common mistakes that clinicians make when it comes to social media policy. And then also just some of the tips that we can incorporate in terms of creating a a sound social media policy. So Keely, let's jump right into this. What would you say are three tips on creating a sound social media policy? So I would say that the first thing that would be really useful for anyone to do is to really think about how they use the internet and social media. So for example, I've had a number of clinicians say to me, I'm not on Facebook or I'm not on Twitter or I'm not on LinkedIn. I just use email. Should Is there a reason for me to have a social media policy? And so I say yes, because at least people need to know how you use email and when you'll respond and what sorts of things you would like to get via email. You know, do you just want schedule changes or do you want somebody reporting about their week? Or I would say the most extreme, do you want your clients forwarding exchanges that they've had with other people to you via email (laughs) for you to, you know, because those things do happen. So my first tip would really be thinking about your own use. And so how that might intersect with a client and the questions a client might have regarding how you're going to respond to them. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, not to cut you off, but like, I like that you're grouping email into this broader category of social media. Yes, absolutely. And the the other reason why I do that is because our emails are searchable. So someone could certainly enter our email address into a search engine and they might find activity of ours that we forgot about, something we posted 10 years ago that's now archived and indexed. I just never, I don't know what it's like for you, but like for me, when I'm sending an email, I think about it in the moment, but I don't often think about it, like the the long-term implications of it. Right. How, how it sits somewhere or it might end up being archived. Maybe it originally existed in one place and then it gets moved to another place because of the website or community we posted on. So that first tip is really about just assessing your own use. The second tip is to really consider whether you're a person who's going to have an integrated online presence, and by which I mean integrating the personal with the professional. So, and I opted very early on to separate the two, and partly because the ethics codes were saying that we were responsible for things we did in our professional lives, but not our personal lives. So I thought, okay, if I, if I use my personal pseudonym online to advertise therapy groups or talk about my work, then I'm opening up that part of my life now as part of my professional world. So people have very different ideas about this. And there are some people who really feel strongly that for example, people who like work in the recovery community, let's say, or people who work with LGBT folks or transgender or non-binary folks, they may feel like they are part of a small community and that separation doesn't feel natural or it feels like it would be just strange. Mm. 
So there are some folks who don't separate professional from personal identity online. But I think, so my second tip would be to think about how you're going to handle that and then what that means for your online activity and how you write and share about your professional work in different forums. So Kaylee, this is going to be a really silly question. So let's say that I get the concept of the integrated think, but the separate. So I guess at a practical level, if it, let's say hypothetically, let's say I wanted to have a separate thing, right? So would this mean, for example, that I would use like one name in my, like, let's just, again, go back to Facebook. So would I use one pseudonym or name for my private Facebook page or, or profile and then a different one for my business or how does, yeah, yes, I'm just curious. Yes. That's a great question because, you know, I'm, I'm saying these things as if everyone knows, as if everyone knows what I mean, which I, I can do at times, but it really, I think, helps to be specific here. So, yes, there are some people who manage Facebook as clinicians by having one profile page that uses the name they use for their business, and perhaps they post openings in their groups or practice or presentations they're doing. And then there are other folks who, there might be some folks who actually create a pseudonym or maybe they use their first and their middle name or something. And that's where they connect to their friends. And that's kind of their personal playground on Facebook. Mm. They don't add colleagues there, although certainly many of us are friends with our colleagues but they do this separating out of, okay, this is my personal life with my friends and family. And then I have my professional profile that's separate. So, so they, and then, well, I guess would they, so that would they do this on every social media channel they're active in, or I guess, depending on where they want to market their practice would be the. Right. Expert. Some people do that. And that is definitely what I did early on when I was doing this. Whereas I have some other friends and colleagues who felt like that was just too cumbersome. And maybe because, for example, as I talked about these small communities that they're a part of, that maybe they're less concerned about what it would be like if a client looked at their profile and saw that they had all these people in common. You know, so they're more comfortable using their real full name and you know, they are both a psychologist and a person who spends time socially on Facebook and they're less guarded about their personal life and less concerned about potential blurring. Does that clarify? It does. And I, I was actually thinking this is at least in, um, in my Facebook group, this has been a, a newer feature here, probably in the last, I would say less than two months, but there's now this option and that Facebook is rolling out where you can actually go into groups or you can actually submit a request to join a group as a Facebook business page, right? Before it was you had to actually submit it through your personal profile, which is interesting how that rollout works with what we're talking about now. Right. And one of the things that I have actually found over time is I've started using my business name and the Dr. Kate Holmes name in a lot of places that I had interest in exploring just as a way to let 
my clients know it's me because, you know, I think one of the downsides of what I did with the separating of the identities in some ways was not flagging to folks who I am, you know, which raises the possibility for my pseudonym and a client's pseudonym to get entangled in something without our, either of us being aware. So there are some ways that I actually feel like if I just use Dr. K. Combs everywhere, then at least I'm not accidentally masking myself in situations where a client would want to know they were interacting with me. That's interesting. I feel like this could get complicated very quickly. Like there's so much like little things to consider. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I don't, I mean, I have started trying to figure it out, but as time goes on, there's all these new complications to think about. And it makes for this to be a very interesting area of focus for me. Right. So the the first two tips were, again, one is think about how we use social media. And number two is whether you want to have, whether you're a person that wants to sort of have an integrated social media presence versus separating them out. What's the third tip that you have? Yeah, I think the third tip really might be, again, more of an evaluative measure of looking at, you know, if you're doing this today and you haven't yet created a social media policy, maybe thinking about what has happened in your practice. You know, have you had people follow you or request to be a friend or contact on a particular site? Have you had your clients bring in that they saw you online and something you said or did in a forum had an effect on them? Are you confused about whether you can or should Google your patients? You know, so sometimes people have seen my policy and they've said, do I really need a four or five page document? (laughs) And I say, no, you don't. Think about what is applicable to your practice, your internet use, and the populations you serve, and including the clinical issues that these folks are bringing in. Because, you know, somebody who works in a prison might have different concerns than someone who works with school children. So also, you know, really thinking about what makes sense now for my actual practice and the habits of those people who come to see me and my own habits as a practitioner. Those are good things to think about. Keely, as as we wrap up, I, I wanted to ask you a question, which is, what would you say are the, the two biggest issues that you get in your consulting practice in terms of mistakes that clinicians make when it comes to a social media policy? So that question is kind of tricky. That actually combines two things. Most people are not actually contacting me for consultation about their policies. Mm. It might be easier for me to just talk about the problems people come to me for in consultation. Yeah, that sounds good. So yeah, what, so when folks are approaching you for a consultation, what, are, what would you say are like the two biggest or the two most common ones? The two most common concerns I get in consultation are Yelp reviews where somebody has gotten, sometimes it's a positive review, usually it's a negative review, and clinicians are concerned about what they can do and how they can respond. And it's often very frustrating because we can't do anything that would compromise client confidentiality, even if a person has seemingly identified themselves. That's not the same thing as a signed release of information. 
you know, we are still expected to uphold that standard. So I'm finding a lot of clinicians to be troubled by negative Yelp reviews. And then the other thing that people consult with me about sometimes is this question of integrated or separate identities. So for example, perhaps somebody wants to start doing a coaching practice but they don't know whether it would be appropriate or if it would be a a risky thing to their practice if they advertise that on their psychotherapy page. Or a person perhaps wants to start writing books or performing. And so it's, it's questions about managing these different aspects of ourselves and safe ways to do that that don't compromise the clinical work with someone who might discover this other aspect of their activities in the world. I'm glad you mentioned those two because I can't tell you the amount of conversations that I've seen um, or or just heard about where that's both of those have happened. Um, I feel like each of those could be entire podcast episodes on their own. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, they are definitely entire hour-long consultations right. <laughs> when they when they occur. No, but I'm so glad you mentioned them because I think especially with like the the first one, the Yelp review, like I think that's something that I've noticed. There is like this sense of feeling very disempowered, very vulnerable, and just also, you know, like, I don't know, the sort of emotional part wants to jump in there and counter, right, the Yelp review. But then, so like, what what can we do legally? Right, right. One thing I will say is that through a few internet searches and there's certainly some posts on my blog that I can send to you if it's helpful. There have been some cases where people have legally pursued negative reviews and it is so far, it has continued to be protected speech. And then of course, one has to consider if you do pursue something legally, that that gets documented on the internet. And what is it like for your clients to find out that you pursued a former client legally? So that could be another reputational issue for your practice. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, I would love a link to those articles. And we'll put that on the show notes page for you guys, which you can find over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session dash 181. Keely, I'm I'm grateful that we were able to connect finally. And I feel like this is just the tip of the iceberg, but I'm hoping that yes. those of you guys that are, are listening, that's at least given you a little bit of pause in terms of thinking about social media policies. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for asking me. It was a pleasure. And as you could tell, I can easily geek out on this stuff for quite a while. So I also know I wanted you to... want me back. I'm happy to come back and talk about it more. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for being available. Um, I really I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Like you're such a wonderful service to our community. I know that this world of social media, for many of us, it, it is still very intimidating and I'm so glad that you have the desire to geek out on this stuff to make it so much easier for, for us. I also wanted to just ask, so you do a couple of types of different consultations. And so where can we learn more about the consulting work you do and some of the other resources? The consulting work that I do is most easily found at my shop at drkcolmes.com. And I do consultation on clinical and ethical issues related to the internet and social media. And I also do consultation on sexual and gender diversity in practice. And folks can find that information in my shop under book consultation time with me. Perfect. Keely, thank you so much for doing this and have a great rest of your day. You too. Take good care. Bye.
Bye. Hi there. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Keely, and especially I hope that it's given you some insight into thinking about social media policies and all of the different things that go into informed consent when we work with our clients. Keely's website is again over at Dr. K. Holmes, that's K-O-L-M-E-S dot com. And on the website, there's a place in terms of if you want to do, if you need to consult based on your unique situation. And if you're interested, one of the things that we're working on with for STC directory members, you can find more about the directory over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash directory. But Keely is actually going to come on later this year, and we're going to have a live Q&A on this topic of what happens if I get a negative Yelp review? I feel like this is something that a lot of us have struggled with. A lot of us are trying to think about and looking forward to this conversation because Keely's just a wealth of knowledge on it. And and again, you can find more about the directory over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash directory if that's something that you think would be helpful for you. Before we wrap up, just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Turning Point HQ for supporting today's podcast session. So Turning Point HQ is the result or is the brainchild of David Frank, who is a financial planner for therapists. And as I've mentioned before, uh, Dave and I actually have gotten to be good friends, just an awesome person to work with. And one of the things that Dave will help us to do is create a holistic and an intentional retirement and investing plan that supports you to lead a really awesome life. Because ultimately, I think for many of us, it's we invest, right, to create the life that we want. And uh, it's to do it in an intentional way. And Dave, honestly, is just one of the most like heart-centered folks that I've ever met. And you're absolutely going to be in good hands with him. You can learn more about Turning Point HQ and the awesome services that they provide over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Turning Point HQ. And if you go through that link, uh, Dave actually created this seven financial mistakes that therapists make. It's a free downloadable and uh, you can download it right there. And then you also get $200 off any of your, any of the services that Dave provides. Be sure to mention that you heard it on STC. And again, show notes to today's episode can be found over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session dash 181. Have a great rest of your day and thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Selling the Couch podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit www.sellingthecouch.com. So if you've been listening to the STC podcast for a while, or you've been listening to podcasts and you've had this thought of, Mel, I would love to launch my own podcast in order to grow my business. Just wanted to encourage you to check out our free podcasting workshop, which is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. You can basically sign up at a day and a time that works for you. It's 90 minutes. And when I do these workshops or when I record them, I truly believe in the quality teaching, so it's going to be well worth your time. We're going to go through gear recommendations and how to launch strategically and how to think about monetizing your podcast and how to line up your podcast with your existing offers and how to do it strategically and authentically uh, and not salesy and slimy. 
um, and all of those things. So again, the link is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop.